right. Welcome to Acquisitions Anonymous. It is yet another Friday and we are here recording again. Uh, I'm your uh, co-host, Michael Girdley. I am joined today by one of our two regular co-hosts, Bill. Good morning to you, Bill. Good morning. Your haircut looks fantastic. Thank you. Yep. Which, which supercuts did you go to? <laughs> I did not go to supercuts. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, during the pandemic, my mom has been cutting my hair. She lives in town and I haven't been going to uh, barbers. So she has figured out how to do it. And it's actually great because you get to see my mom, you know, like an excuse for us to hang out and I get a free haircut. Uh, I get, you know, we get to talk a little bit. So mom came over last night for dinner, got a haircut. <laughs> That's great. Mom, mom is definitely better than Supercuts. Well, today, today we have a special guest crowdsourced from Twitter who have, we have known for a long time, approximately 24 minutes uh, <laughs> since got introduced to Eric. But I put out a call on Twitter because Mills can't make it today. And Eric was the best candidate that came through. So Eric, we're, we're super excited to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I think you're going to be great because you told me you've never listened to an episode. So this should be perfect. I know exactly <laughs> what to expect. <laughs> uh, well, cool, man. Well, why don't you give us like a, a one minute thumbnail sketch of, of how you got to, to where you are today? And, and I think that'll explain to people why I thought you'd be awesome on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a small family business. My grandfather actually did entrepreneurship through acquisition way back in 1937. Uh, he bought a paint company in my local hometown in Northern New York. And my family uh, had the pleasure of running that business for 80 years until we sold it in 2017. So after a tour in corporate America and consulting and, and business school uh, and a startup, I uh, decided to go back to that route, kind of get back to my roots. That led me to do a self-funded search that lasted 25 months and resulted in me acquiring a small industrial IoT business based in Emeryville, California, about 10 minutes from my house, which is a nice bonus uh, on the search criteria, but uh, have been running that business since August of 2020 and loving every day of it. Yeah, that's great. For those of you listening via audio, Eric is kitted out in full East Bay, San Francisco gear today with his Looks like he's in a very old building and he's got a, a flannel shirt on. So no, nothing but the best from somebody living in the Oakland, uh, Oakland, Berkeley area. Exactly. We're, we're the factory here is a little bit under the radar relative to what most might think of as Silicon Valley. So uh, maybe we'll do a like video Silicon Warehouse as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> Lest anyone tell you search is sexy, right? It's, yep. it's what you're looking for. Flannel shirts and industrial warehouses. Yeah. You got it. And you you diminished a little bit. I mean, you went uh, something impressive. You went to Harvard Business School as part of this and you know, not not just any business school, the business school of that stuff. So pr pretty impressive stuff and very cool career. So we're we're glad you're here and and in the 24 minutes I've gotten to know you, you seem fantastic. So. <laughs> well, thanks. Hopefully that can uh that can hold for a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, we've got uh we've got two deals today. Uh these are both listener submitted. Um, and I think some are really in line with both the experience of what we have as a team here, but then also stuff that I've heard people have an interest in from the listener community. And so th thanks everybody that keeps sending us deals to consider and talk about. It's it's the lifeblood of the show now and, and keep it up. So the first one is a contract manufacturer of custom corporate and collegiate apparel. So like if you want to get branded t-shirts or, well, I guess the technical term is swag, all, all that kind of swag. This is a swag company. So uh, headline of the deal is uh, they do nearly $60 million in sales 
And from that, uh, they generate just over $4 million in free cash flow a year. So $60 million business in terms of sales, $4 million in cash flow. They have a listing price for the business just shy of four times cash flow. So they want to sell it for $16 million, and that would be $16 million sales price. Uh, they claim to have $7 million in inventory. They have $2.1 million in accounts receivable, and they sell swag nationally. So it's for licensed collegiate products sometimes, uh, but also for clientele across the country. Uh, the business is in Des Moines, Iowa, where they do design and sales. And then they actually do manufacturing and production in Vietnam. Company size is 32 people. So that's 30 full-time workers, two part-time in Iowa. And then Vietnam, the factory is 85 people there. So looks like about 120 people total. And again, they do 4 million in cash flow. So and it's technically a contract manufacturer. So um, they claim to have a full management staff already in place. And in Iowa, just to recap, they do all the sales design, order management, everything. And then Vietnam is where everything gets made. So I assume that they're mostly doing the kind of work on top of the existing things. So you get a Patagonia jacket manufactured already in China or Vietnam, gets shipped there. They do all the embroidery that pressing stuff <laughs> that they do and they they put it in there and then that all gets sold to to corporates whether it's caps bags garments and and all that kind of stuff. So I actually read this Michael as they were doing it cuz they said they've got uh pattern makers and really? design techs and stuff. So I think they're actually making the clothes themselves. I think this is fully vertically integrated in Vietnam. Oh wow. Okay. Thank you for the correction there. 85 people doing it in Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, I think they got a garment factory in Vietnam. Yeah, so maybe you're not getting your stuff on Patagonia. So they got a full garment factory there. So that's definitely a unique advantage there. And then they have deals with colleges, universities to do their customer apparel, swag, manufacture their stuff with the logo on it. I guess this would explain why my college's t-shirts were so terrible in the college store. <laughs> and of course, the broker thinks that the company can grow tenfold and should be bought by somebody already in logistics manufacturing and could expand what they're doing. And that's where we're at. So uh, sellers willing to stay for a couple of years. They don't have... Oh, here's the reason for selling. The reason for selling is huge growth potential and the business needs someone who has the ambition to grow it. Classic. Is, isn't that always the case? <laughs> is it never the case? Average sales site is very interested. Th interesting. Three to 4,000. They'll do all kinds of stuff. PPE, headwear. So I, I guess caps and visors and stuff. Bag shirts, sweatshirts, jackets, vests, pants, shorts, promotional products, whatever you want. I guess they'll do it. And they do design and manufacturing of the custom stuff. So yeah, I thanks for correcting me on reading that that poorly. And they sell across the US. So what do you guys think, Bill? Yeah. So what's interesting is I almost bought uh, way back in the day in 2012, a business very much like this. They were not vertically integrated, but they did make collegiate apparel. It was actually a great business. The only reason I didn't buy it is they wanted a bonkers price. It was a great business because they they were really tapped into like the alumni bases. And the royalty fees were way less. I think they were paying about 1%. There's this one company called CLC that controls like almost all of the royalties for colleges. So if you want to say sell a shirt with, you know, Indiana University or Texas or whatever, you don't go to those colleges. They've outsourced it to this company, CLC, who kind of vets you, mm. you know, you know, does all the paperwork or whatever and administers. They probably keep a hefty portion of it before passing it along to the college. So at least the guys I was I was looking at were paying about 1%, which I thought was crazy low. And maybe that's changed. This was back in 2012. 
The other thing that's changed since 2012, at least in the collegiate space, is the rise of fanatics who have just eaten that whole market. You know, they're taken over, you know, a lot, most college bookstores are actually run by fanatics. Like they white label the fanatics platform, fanatics handles all the inventory and just kind of sends the college a cut. So that is something I would definitely, I mean, they're a, they're a billion dollar company, huge business. They, they are the player in collegiate and actually pro licensing. So like if you go to carolinapanthers.com, like I think it's run by fanatics. Uh, on the back end, their store. Um, so like absolutely huge. So I would want to understand how these guys kind of, what the competitive dynamics with Fanatics was. But if you have the licenses, you know, I assume that, you know, Fanatics has the licenses, you have the license. So you're, you're going to be slugging it out with Fanatics on the SERPs, on the ads, all that stuff from an e-commerce perspective, for sure. And they have everybody, Michael scrolling on his screen through. If you just go to fanatics.com and uh, click on college, Every, you know, even your practically local community college, like they've got it, they're doing apparel. So definitely like a big player. I'd want to understand that. The other experience I have here is I had a, my cousin actually bought a business that did corporate custom apparel, did, uh, did dye sublimation and like custom, custom corporate stuff, which I think is what these guys are doing a lot of being their average purchase uh, or their average sale amount is three to $4,000. Um, and they kind of talk about kind of like custom run. Uh, it seems to me like this is a little bit more of a B2B business is my best guess, whereas Fanatics would be definitely like B2C. So at least for the business that my cousin bought, he it was very much kind of an SEO-based business. People were searching for this specific thing, and he was just basically contracting it out. He wasn't even vertically integrated, but he actually did pretty well. Like This is a huge market, people wanting custom stuff, huge market. I would imagine it's tough to differentiate. Uh, and that probably means the, the margins are a little bit competitive. And I would think that's why these guys have spun it up in Vietnam to maintain their, I think they've got, you know, what do they got a probably 8% margin here, 4 million bucks on 60 million in sales. So, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. I'd want to understand a lot more about who their customers really were and how they went to market and if they felt they had any differentiation. Yeah, it is interesting. They have... Out of all of the colleges in the United States, they only have 18. So mm-hmm. it, it feels like there's the this is the folks that aren't big enough to work with fanatics. Perhaps. Well, one one dynamic of that industry, and so I'd worked for a brief period for a company called Follett. Follett uh, operates about 50% of the bookstores in the country. Uh, Notre Dame, Boston College, uh, Miami-Dade Community College. Mm-hmm. It is a really interesting market. It's really huge. On the licensing front, though, what I saw was that the long, the medium and long tail, you can license their stuff all day, every day. Because for them, for Louisiana State, selling an extra shirt and getting that commission is great. The Texases of the world, the Alabamas, the big kind of tier one blue chip schools that have the, the athletics and the uh, fan base behind them understand the value of that brand. And they're very protective of it. So it would be interesting to understand who those 18 licenses are and if they're direct, potentially, yeah. because I think that could drive a lot of value. The other thing I think is important to dig into here is what exactly is the advantage? What exactly is different or unique about this? Because if you're out there trying to outspend fanatics, Bill, to your point on, you know, on Google, forget about it, right? You're just yeah. going to be throwing money in the, in the Google, Google hole and never seeing it back. But 
if you have some direct relationships, you have alumni relationships, if there's an interesting or unique strategy on the collegiate side, that could be really powerful and really, really profitable. And then obviously the corporate side is, is different as well. So, you know, what's the split between collegiate and corporate? And what's the nature of the relationships that they have? Are they just going direct? Are they just getting, you know, a third party license to, to do long tail stuff that doesn't have a lot of demand? Uh, so there's a lot to dig into there once you get beyond these top line numbers. Yep. The the business I looked at was a long tail one. And he actually, exactly like you said, he said the, the golden goose in this industry is Notre Dame. Yep. He said they are like the collegiate brand because their <laughs> fan base is so huge. It's like every Catholic in America is a Notre Dame fan. Um, so their their fan base is so huge in the same way that like, you know, they strike their own TV deal. Like they, you know, they don't play ball with any of the conferences. They do the same thing on the licensing side. Um, like they, you have to work directly with them. It's like a seven figure upfront fee. They vet yeah. the crap out of you. Um, it's like no joke. But if you get the Notre Dame license, it's like a license to print money. Yep, absolutely. They do say here the licensed portion of the business accounts for approximately 10% of their revenue, while the other 90% is essentially through large specialty product distributors. So I think I think these guys are, to some extent, like when AT&T contracts with a local group, right? Our local swag, swag vendor to give them 50,000 shirts. Mm-hmm. I think these guys get involved at that point. I think it's the primary part of their business. I don't think the licensing appears to be that much of it. It's just 10%. Interesting. So these are more, this is more of a B2B business, we think. Um, but yeah. really it's more of like a B2B2B, right? Like they go to like sure. one of these local swag companies and they're the company behind the scenes that makes it in Vietnam for them. Mm-hmm. Which is why they've got a 7% cash flow margin. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the tough part about you look at how much these guys have in terms of asset heaviness, right? All these people, all these males to feed which week to week are assets that you can get rid of if you if you let them go. But that plus 7 million in inventory, plus all these accounts receivables, that means they're selling stuff on terms. This is going to be, to some extent, a cash-hungry business with, it feels like a lot of risk to it. Like you need to be well-capitalized to deal with some some lean times when you're, you know, have COVID show up. Like I, I don't I don't imagine COVID was that strong for these guys. It must have hurt. Yeah. So that was also interesting to me because when you read the description here, it sort of sounds like they make to order, right? Their project, like it says, the average length of time from an order being placed to being delivered is 55 days. So this kind of sounds like they take an order, they make it, deliver it. And yet they're sitting on $7 million of inventory. And I'm going, you know, how does that work? You know, I'd like to understand that. And the other thing too, in apparel, inventory is a nightmare in apparel. Sizes, colors, you know, last season's, you know, pattern that's now out of style. Um, like, so as a buyer, I would really want to understand that $7 million and how much of that is triple XL three years ago stuff that we can't sell. Uh, it's a very classic seller trick to try to get you, the buyer, to bail them out of all their inventory mistakes. I think, I think that's what we talked on the podcast before about Halloween costumes. Uh, and this is sort of like the same thing, you know, like they're trying to sell like old Ron Burgundy Halloween costumes that like nobody wants anymore. Um, this, I think, would be like the same thing. You know, what's in that $7 million? And I definitely would not be paying uh, full price, you know, 100 cents on the dollar for that inventory. Yeah. Although I do love that this is a seller. They're just like, here's the price. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's reasonable. Yeah. I mean, it's so... Which makes me wonder, <laughs> there's, there's, there's got to be something when you double click on this, you're going to be like, Ugh. not so yeah. great. 
you got to give them credit for listening to it under four times with a real price and saying, you know, come with bits. I, I do appreciate that. Yeah. I've run across this broker before and they actually, compared to most brokers, they do a really good job of having reasonable multiples and being pretty upfront with their listing and what their expectations are. It's actually kind of refreshing as a buyer. Yeah. Yeah. And this, we can talk about what this deal is. It's, it's a teaser from a, from a brokerage called The Firm. Um, and that's the firm ADV, so Alpha Delta Victor.com. And um, they're a brokerage out of, I guess, wherever they are. Isn't everybody out of Florida these days? No, they're out <laughs> of the Midwest. I think it's um, 402 yeah. area code, wherever that is. Omaha. Omaha. All right. But they have listings all over the country. This isn't an immediate pass if you're the right buyer, I think. Is that kind of the consensus we have? Yeah. 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 At the very least, interesting to dig into, I'm sure. There's worse ways to try to get rich than this. Okay, perfect. Well, you guys ready to move on to number two? Let's do it. All right. So this one uh, comes from a listener. And um, they uh, this particular listener loved our Deepa episode, by the way. So I thought, I thought that was a great one. And this is a deal that uh, this person wanted to send in. This is a business that is a uh, sales of ice machines. And they uh, basically do service of those kind of machines like Kozazaki and stuff like that. They are located in Northern California. And basically they are split into two entities. So one does sale maintenance and rental refrigeration products. Um, and that's branded. And then, then the second thing they'll do is they'll go in and also do design build for people. And then the second thing they do is rental and leasing. So if like a restaurant doesn't want to buy their ice machine, then they can come to these guys and do that. So the cool thing I think about this business, if you think about what they do, you know, they sell you the razor and then they have the razor blades in terms of maintenance that you sign up for and come back to them and they run as an S corporation. So uh, asking 2 million for the business, supposedly the searcher said this actually ended up selling to somebody else. So it's a deal that that passed. So if you go look for this one, it's not going to be out there unless you want to try to buy it from whoever bought it. They operate out of a, a 5,000 square foot facility. It looks like typical tilt wall kind of stuff up in Northern California. Have a couple trucks. So just as you imagine here, uh, economically, the business has been pretty steady. So they hold just under 200,000 uh, in inventory. And then revenue for the past few years has been just over $2 million with one really good year in 2019. So 2.1, 2.1, 2.4, 2.1. Uh, their COGS were about 20% of total sales. They had labor and GNA and all that kind of stuff, about a million. And then they claim that the business has been averaging, it looks like about 850 grand in seller discretionary earnings. So Seller discretionary earnings, people ask us... By the way, people ask us to define technical terms, Eric, so I'll do that. Seller discretionary earnings is basically a computation for small businesses to where you add back... You basically add back in what the seller makes running it, including the seller's salary and if they buy themselves a boat and stuff like that out of the company. So so this business is making about 850 on average. Pretty, pretty repetitive, though 2020 was down a bit um, with regards to that stuff. I assume that's because of COVID type, type stuff. So... It looks like they just had more expenses in 2020 because the revenue held on at 2.1. Yeah, that is a weird one. The yeah, cogs went way down. Yeah, so, <laughs> I don't know, maybe the restaurants were using less ice. <laughs> I don't know. It could have been a shift in, you know, they, it definitely that would be something to look into. You know, when you look at these kind of things, 
you look for changes in patterns and that can help you learn about the business. So their cogs were 550,000, 550,000, 550,000, and then 460,000 in 2020. So there was a big dip this year and cogs is the cost of goods sold. So that could have been in terms of ice machines or equipment or any of that kind of stuff. But expenses expenses didn't go up that much though, Bell. Look, they've been they've been inching up year over year. They went from 1.175 to 1.2 million mm-hmm. in those from 2019 to 2020. And it looks like 2019, maybe they had a big project because they're yeah. two one, two one, two four, two one. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. So I don't yeah. consider 2020 to be down. It seems like that's actually in line with expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. You know, we saw this like last week, Eric, with a, a manufacturer and install, or a, I'm sorry, an installer and designer of uh, grandstands for high schools and stadiums and stuff like that. Like, oh, cool. At at this kind of size, the difference between feast or famine for a year at at two million in revenue is like maybe two projects. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty interesting how high these guys have in terms of fixed costs. Did they also say that there are no employees? No, they actually give us here. Um, this is actually a great summary of the business. They actually give us here the employees. So they have a, a sales head who's making about 100K and then three in, in the house folks, in office folks who appear to be making, let's say 50, 60, another 50, about 120,000, 130,000 between the three of them. And then they have four service, five service techs and a manager that are running around. So looks like a 10 person business plus CEO. Nine person business. Yeah, I think this is a pretty cool business. I mean, it seems pretty darn stable. That's got the razor razor blade thing going. You know, <laughs> people are gonna need ice until the end of time. You know, I don't I don't really see any like huge disruptive threats to this thing. I, I don't hate this at all. I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So here's here's some facts that may change your mind. Um, <laughs> the seller has been working on the business 32 hours a week. So for congratulations, Mr. Seller, you work four days a week. Uh, <laughs> I want to get there someday. There is a license for this in California, a C38 license. I guess that's some sort of... That's California for you. Yeah. I got, yeah. Uh, the next thing you know, they're going to be making you get a license to land in, land at San Francisco airport. Yep. Good looking air, good looking office. And then um, it looks like they do give us a breakdown of their seller's discretionary earnings and ad backs, which is all very small for an old man to see. Please say you have a boat. Please say you have a boat. Um, doesn't look like he has a boat. Sorry, it's one of my pet peeves when people use their businesses to buy their boat. He does have a car. He's got uh, seven or eight thousand dollars of auto expenses for owner benefit run through the business. It's definitely an F Ford three fifty with dually and a lift. It's never not that. <laughs> yep, I found the SDE calculation. The details of it are always a great indication of how reasonable the seller will be to negotiate. Oh yeah, tell us that. But tell us about that. Well, absolutely. I mean, if if you've got folks that are trying to add everything in the kitchen sink. And into the SDE to just inflate what it looks like, you know, that they're going to be pretty stubborn when it comes to negotiating any specific terms. I mean, it also shows that the broker may have set their expectations inappropriately around the price. If you've got the broker telling them they're making $900,000 a year in SDE, and really it's more like six because they got a bunch of fluff in there, it's hard to get sellers off of that expectation once it's been set by, by a broker. Yeah, because they they get the sales price in their head. The seller does. Oh, exactly. I'm check for X million dollars, and then you go, "This SDE is BS, right? It needs to come down." Like I'll hold your multiple, but SDE yep. comes down, and now the seller goes, "I thought I was going to make three million dollars. I'm only going to yeah. make two million dollars." It's a very right. powerful anchor. 
Yes. The thing I would always tell folks when I was searching, when they'd come back at me with that sort of thing was, your accountant can put any sort of number on a spreadsheet, but they're not going to pay you the cash that I'm willing to pay you for the business. So if your accountant wants to buy the business for $3 million, by all means, go ahead and sell it. I'm here offering you two and a half, and that's a good offer. And you could have that in your bank account in six months. Mm-hmm. And that always seemed to loosen things up a little bit. And that's a great, great way to put it. This is really interesting. Okay. So the thing's been just rough thumbnail math. They've been averaging about 800K in solid discretionary earnings. So round that down to 750, um, given some of the the wonkiness that is inherent in broker listings. And they want 2 million for the business. Yeah. Not even 3X. Reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Very reasonable. It's not surprising to me this thing sold. That seems pretty reasonable. Yep. A couple of things I would have wanted to understand about this business is the unit economics on like a single ice machine. You know, how much do they buy the ice machine for? How much does it rent for? How long until it's paid back? And then critically, when does it break and I have to replace it? Because you may have some hidden CapEx in this thing because this is, you know, in some ways this is an equipment rental business, right? Mm. So whether you're renting trucks or cranes or whatever, or ice machines, eventually those things are going to crap out. So what I would want to understand is, you know, yeah, I'm getting a fleet, so to speak, of ice machines when I buy this business for 2 million bucks, but how much useful life is left in that fleet of ice machines when I'm going to have to buy a whole new fleet of ice machines. And I have seen that dramatically change the ROI calc on some of these rental businesses. The good thing is that as a rental business, you want to rent things and have them sit wherever you put them for a long time. Yep. And this seems like a business like that. You're not moving the ice machines around to different festivals or other locations, which eats into your margin. So exactly. And all you got to do is fill them with water. It's not like dumpsters you got to keep renting or emptying, <laughs> right? Every every couple of days, like you plug these things in, water, you're done. I mean, we have for our coffee business, we have an ice machine and it's always a pain in the ass. It's like it makes only so much ice a day. We're having to go over to the grocery store and buy ice. Like you know, it's just part part of the gig. So uh, this is great. <laughs> you <laughs> you want to become stuff. a customer. <laughs> well, it's kind of like when you go buy a car. My dad would, would always point this out. He's like, okay, so I'm watching this. You go buy a new car and the salesman tells you how great it is and it's never going to break. And they take you to the finance manager and the finance manager tells you how it's going to break and you need to buy an extended warranty. Like, well, which one is it? Like, let's <laughs> pick one. Uh-huh. <laughs> kind of the same thing. Yep. Well, there's there's a little joke about auto dealers are just they're just service and parts distributors with sales arms, you know, in front as content marketing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, exactly, exactly some of what goes on here and why it's a good business. So all the auto dealers around me flying private jets. So it tells you something about that. You know what? I think it'd be pretty cool to have an auto dealer come on the podcast and break down that business. I've I've never really seen inside an auto dealer. I bet that'd be fascinating. All I know is the real estate they're in is super pricey. So there's got to be some money being made there. There's a lot of money being made there. I'm sure of that. Our, our guy here in Charlotte, uh, Rick Hendrick, sponsors NASCAR teams and has private jets and has one of the largest private car collections in the country. So I think he's doing all right. Yeah. One time, and we're getting totally off topic, but near my in-laws in Fort Lauderdale, I, we used to drive past this one house that was... I just had a ridiculous boat like behind it. And it was like a $20 million house. And I'd always be like, who the heck is that? So I went and like figured out the guy's name, Googled it. And it was the guy who went to Toyota in the 1960s when nobody thought that Japanese cars were going to do anything and got the license to import all the Toyotas into the Southeast of the United States. And so mm-hmm. for the past 50 years, he's been making like 200 bucks every time a Toyota gets sold in America. Damn. 
There you not go. Bad deal. So that was not as cool though. In Fort Lauderdale, there was the guy who started Taco Bell's house or who started Taco Bell. Guess what his house looked like? Uh, Did it look like a taco or something? Like it looked like a freaking Taco Bell. Like (laughs) it had a big bell in front of the door. I was like, (laughs) it's crazy. I love that. Super crazy. Living the brand. You gotta live the dream, man. Go all in. Why not? But what do we think? We think about the, the ice company. I like it. I think it's cool. Um, I, I mean, I would I would also want to know, like, how do I expand this thing? Like, can I, you know, clearly seems to work. Like, are there, is this the type of thing where I'm licensed only in this city and this is only as big as I get and the government's only giving out so many licenses or, geez, I don't know, could you franchise this thing? Like, I would be thinking about, you know, how does this get bigger? Yeah. When you can SBA this thing, right? It's got assets and yeah, right size everything. So you can get a SBA loan. Yeah. What do you think, Eric? I, I like it too. I think it's a good business. Good recurring revenue. Being a being the resident Californian here on the on the show, the licensing piece isn't as scary as it might seem. They're not geographic based. They're more based on experience in California. Mm-hmm. So you can either hire someone to be that RME for you and hold the license and have the liability. That's a common thing out here in California. So I think that's very very easy to overcome. The one thing. I would want to understand on the geographic constraint that you brought up, Bill, is do they have a specific footprint from their from their ice machine company? So is there some sort of limitation on your growth because of the brand that you're representing with the ice machines? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but that would be a thing that I'd want to understand. Yeah. So would you view the California license almost as a moat in that case? Like they have the license and it might be, can they have experience in California and maybe it would be hard to start this up and compete? I think so. The licensing in California is is kind of an interesting beast, and there's a, a lot of instances where you need one. It definitely serves as a moat, but a lot of folks have found ways around that moat with the RMO, RME type of relationship. I mean, a lot of general contractors, if you buy an electrical contractor, for example, you can hire someone to be that RME, which stands for uh, Responsible Managing Employee, mm. which is effectively like the engineer who stamps the drawings. Uh, in in civil engineering, so yeah, it, it's it certainly can be an advantage, but it it will require a little administrative work to to sort it all out. Very cool. All right, well, good. That sounds like we got some winners being sent in from the listeners. So thanks to everybody who's submitted deals this week. We we got more to work through. Also, call out. We're still losing money, uh, Bill, on doing this podcast. Actually, I'm the one losing money because I, I keep forgetting to ask you guys to contribute. But if anybody wants to join us as a patron, where our goal is to break even, right, for what we're paying to be edited. So, go to our our anchor site, and and any money is appreciated. And then Eric, I think our listeners would love how to follow you and watch you on your journeys and that sort of thing. What what sort of things would be helpful for people to know about you? Yeah, sure. So you could follow me on Twitter obviously, which is how this whole discussion came about. Uh, my handle is Newman E-A, N-E-W-M-A-N-E-A. You could also find me on Search Funder or my search website is vertocapital.com. Always happy to take introductions and meet people in the ETA space and pay it forward and help everybody who needs it. Yeah, man. Well, you've been awesome. So well done. All right. Another great episode in the books. All right, guys, we'll catch you next week. Eric, thanks a bunch. You're great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Eric.